start this. Let's begin with uh, a word of prayer, and, um, and we'll dive in. Chris, would you pray for us this morning? Yes, sir. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness towards us and your Son. Thank you that you brought us to this hour to hear your word. Open our, our hearts, Lord, to receive the truth that will be laid out before us, Lord, that the charges, the, the comforts, the convictions, may we receive them uh, with great joy, and may your word do its, its sanctifying work in, in all of our lives, Lord, and we just thank you for yeah, this great opportunity. Uh, Lord, protect our families, and may they and may we, together with them, uh, be found praising and thanking you for who you are and all that you have done for us. In your son, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week, uh, we started what should be about a two-part series, so this will be part two, of leading with humility and what that looks like to, to have humility and for that to affect our leadership. And really, as we talked about last time, that's a crucial virtue for leadership. If we are going to reflect Christ in our homes, in the workplace, wherever it is in the church, then, then we must have humility. After all, Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, our Lord exemplified humble servant leadership. The problem that we face, though, is in our flesh, we're constantly tempted towards pride. Pride, obviously, is the opposite and the enemy of humility. And what's interesting about pride when it comes to leadership is that pride can evidence itself, the fruit of pride, in all kinds of ways, sometimes polar opposite ways. For example, one man in his pride may respond to, to questions from his wife or his kids or co-workers with sort of a raised voice, anger, heavy-handedness, and an attempt to, to say, no, we will do this and we're going to do it this way or else sort of thing. That's one way that pride manifests, but, but pride can, it's sneaky, it can manifest on the exact opposite way as well. Other men are more passive, and so when their pride rises up, what they do is they just step back and say, okay, you don't want to do it my way? Go ahead, do it your way. And, and sometimes in an effort to just set them up to fail, so they can then come alongside and say, see, if you just listen to me, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Um, <laughs> Are you ready now to follow my leadership? That, that's, that's another manifestation of pride. Other guys, they, they, allow, they sort of ab abrogate their role to, to their wife or whoever else uh, and just sort of sulk with a woe is me kind of disposition. All of those are just fruits of pride. None of those exemplify true, humble servant leadership. And so what, what I want us to do this morning is to continue talking about, well, how? How do we lead with humility? How do we cultivate humility? To do that, I just I want to briefly remind us of what we studied last time because the passage that we're studying today uh, picks up right where we left off in Philippians chapter 2. You remember in Philippians chapter 2, last time we, we introduced that letter as one of Paul's prison epistles. And in Philippians, Paul gives us a, a Christian perspective on life. How do we live in unity with one another? How do we experience the the joy of Christ in our lives, <clears throat> excuse me. And in, in chapter 1, verse 27, he calls the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he begins to lay that out. And what we saw last time is uh, this call to 
selflessness. If you look back at Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As we talked about that, we, we mentioned that Paul is following his, his usual pattern of putting off, renewing our mind, and putting on. And he gives us two different things to put off and two different things to put on in their place. So first, we put off, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So we put that off, put on in its place, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Secondly, we put off, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. In its place, we put on, but also for the interests of others. This, we walked through that a lot last time. I won't go through the details of that. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go listen to it because that set up kind of the, the how-to. How, how do we live with humility? And we talked about humility begins with a selfless perspective, considering the needs of others above our own. Now, with that in mind, what Paul does is really a masterful technique because in verse 5, he stays with this same theme but now he's going to give us an illustration. It's almost as if Paul stepped back and said, okay, here are the commands. Now, what would it look like to live that out? What would it look like to be this kind of person? And of course, there is no greater illustration of humility than our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what happens in verse five. He launches into this this wonderful illustration taken from Christ himself. So let's read verses five through 11, which will be the text that we center on this morning. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we're going to just work our way through verse 8 this morning and focus on Christ's humiliation. Really, verses 5 to 11 break down into two parts. Uh, The first is ultimate humiliation in verses 5 to 8. And then in verse 9, we have ultimate exaltation, verse 9 to 11. So we're just going to look at verses 5 to 8 this morning, ultimate humiliation. Now he begins with a command in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves or have this mind in yourselves. This is a present active command that is it's to be a continual action in the life of the believer that we are continually as a pattern of life to have this same mind or this same attitude. So it's also a plural command which means it applies to every single one of us as as a group, a group of believers. He's speaking to a church here so it's almost like if, if, if we're reading this to our church, North Lake Bible Church, have this mind in yourselves, each of you individually and collectively. This is to be who we are. What mind is he referring to is the question. Well, in context, it has to be the mind he just described 
in verses 3 and 4. This selfless, humble perspective. Have this in yourselves. This is how you are to be. It's how I'm to be. But now he moves to the illustration. It says, all of you are to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, at this point, we're going to dive into a passage that is one of one of the richest passages uh, in theology on Christology, <clears throat> of laying out what Christ did for us and, and how that looks. And there's a lot of wonderful theological truths. There's a lot of debate about certain aspects of this passage. And my fear when we come to these, this text is that we will miss the point because of being distracted either by the arguments around different words in the text or by the theology of the text, when in fact it was not really Paul's primary intention here to give us a theological treatise. It was to give us an illustration to call us to imitate Christ. That really is the point. That's why we're going to go through this. And so we are going to look at the wonderful theological discussions, the beautiful description of what Christ has done, But here's our challenge. Keep in mind verse 5 the entire time that we're walking through this passage. We should have ringing in our ears, have this mind in yourselves. Okay? Because that's the point. The point is Jesus did this to the nth degree. He He was perfectly humble. And this is what we are to be imitating in our lives. So it's intensely theological on the one hand, but it's also in context meant to be intensely practical. There should be this this heavy weight of conviction of every description we read because we realize we're commanded to be this way ourselves. We're not just to look at Christ and say, wow, isn't he amazing? We should do that. But it's also to say, wow, isn't he amazing? And we see this comparison between me and him. I am not. And so I need to follow him and be conformed to his image. And so what he does is he, he creates this masterful downward spiral. It's almost like we begin at the highest peak of the highest mountain in heaven, and then we bring ourselves to the lowest valley on earth. That's kind of the idea. He begins with Christ exalted in the heavens as he should be. So we'll call it Christ's divine position. The first thing we'll see is Christ's divine position. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, although he existed in the form of God. The word form there is important. It's a Greek word for morphe. Morphe is not a term that refers to outward appearance. There's another Greek word that refers to that. So Paul is not saying that Jesus in his human form looked like God the Father. After all, God the Father is spirit, right? He has no physical form. He's not talking about a physical appearance. This word morphe refers to the internal qualities and characteristics that define a being. So he's saying that Jesus had the same essence, the same nature as God the Father. It's a way of saying, really, he is God. He he has all of the essential aspects of God. This is who he was, who existed in the morphe of God, in the form of God. This becomes even clearer in the next phrase because he says, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Although he existed in the form of God, he was God, he shared the same essence with God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. When it says to be be equal with, he's not saying that Jesus looked at equality with God as if he didn't have that and chose not to pursue it. He's saying though he had from eternity past perfect equality with the Father, 
He did not see that as something to be grasped or to be clung to or held on to. Really, it's, it's drawing back to the language of verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Jesus, though he had this position, did not hold on to it in its fullness because he was going to relinquish it in some way for the benefit of others, is what we're going to find out. He's going to humble himself. That phrase, a thing to be grasped, brings to mind kind of the, the two or three-year-old child who sees another child trying to play with their toy, right? And they, they hold on to that and say, mine, I have to have that. The point is, Jesus did not think of his equality with God in that way. He did not selfishly hold on to it, but actually relinquishes it in some way that we'll study in a moment for our benefit that we might share ultimately in his glory. The truth is there's never been a being who had more of a claim on anything than the claim that God has on his own glory. If anything is intrinsic to someone, it's the glory of God. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, he deserves that rightful (coughs) glory. Do you have a question? Yeah, I was thinking, uh, so is it helpful to look at that from a Trinitarian view too, though, that this is God... Right. Exactly, yeah, they're on, they're, they are on equal footing. The, I think the point that Paul is saying is, though that was true, Christ, was, for a reason that we'll find out, did, did not hold on to that, didn't grasp on to that, even though, and what we say, what we're, we're talking about there is, what does it mean that he emptied himself? And we'll get to that in a moment. But in some way, he relinquished an aspect of that that was rightfully his, right? But yes, from eternity past, they have been equal, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're one God, three persons. They share the same essence. That's the, the idea here. And so when he says, have this mind in yourselves, we have to understand this is a perspective that's contrary to our sinful flesh. In this world, if you give a man even the smallest amount of power, his immediate temptation is to hold on to that power at all costs, right? Right? To, to wield that power over others, to be recognized with all of the pomp and circumstance that are, are due that honor. You, you see this, maybe a great illustration would be the military. If you go in as an enlisted person, you know you start at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. I mean, you're a nobody. And so you're longing for just that next level of rank, right? And then there's that next level of rank. There's just constant moving up. And as soon as you get that, you want all that comes with that, right? I don't want to be that guy anymore. In fact, I want to be able to tell that guy what to do. And then you get tired of being this guy, and I want to be that guy so I can tell those people what to do. And, and I want to be honored in the way that my position demands. The truth is, no matter what form of human authority God's allowed you to have in this life, whether someday you're the president of the U.S. or CEO of a prosperous company or assistant manager at Starbucks, or just the coach of your kid's t-ball team. That position ultimately is not about you if you're a Christian. But like Jesus, we're to see that position as a way to, to care for others and to promote the glory of God. That's what it looks like to have this mind in yourselves. Whatever position of authority you have, 
as a head of a household. Ultimately, that's not about you. Eternal glory and equality with God in heaven, surrounded by the worship rightly due his name, were legitimately Christ's. And that they could have been enjoyed without interruption. He could have stayed in that state completely and rightfully so. And yet he didn't insist on holding on to that, but gave it up for the benefit of others. Well, exactly how did he do that? In what way did he do that? This comes to Christ's willful condescension. So we've seen his exaltation, and now we'll see Christ's willful condescension. Look back at the text, verse, let's start at verse 6 again. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself. Now, first of all, notice the word himself. It's supposed to be emphatic. It's drawing attention to the fact that Jesus, whatever this means, Jesus did it to himself. This was not forced upon him. God the Father did not make him do this. This was an active choice by Christ. In fact, all of the verbs in this passage that refer directly to Jesus and something he did are active verbs. That means he's the one performing the action. It's not being done to him. Specifically, in this case, what is it he did to himself? It says he emptied himself. Now, this is what I was talking about before on some of the arguments and disagreements that go on about this passage. We've got to be very, very careful when we describe what it means that Jesus emptied himself. I think the easiest place to begin is to describe what it doesn't mean. What does it not mean? Let me be very clear. When it says he emptied himself, it does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity or any of his divine attributes, not in one iota. Understand that God is by very nature God. And for any moment in history, even for a second to lapse, in any one of the qualities that are essential to the personhood of God means he was not God at all. God is, we talk about the aseity of God, that is he is self-existent. He doesn't need any outside force, right? He is who he is, and he's unchanging. So this can't mean that Jesus ceased to be God or that he relinquished any of his divine attributes or perfections. It can't mean that. That would be heresy. So what does it mean then? In what way did Jesus empty himself? Well, I'll, <clears throat> I'll just share with you from, from MacArthur's commentary. He's got five things he mentions here. We'll expound upon them a little bit. But when it says he emptied himself... He temporarily divested himself of divine glory. He, the independent divine authority, that is, he did everything the Father asked. If you notice in the, in the life of Jesus, he's constantly saying, I came to do the will of my Father. I came to do the will of my Father. So he relinquished his independent divine authority and, and submitted himself to the will of the Father. He also gave up the voluntary exercise of his divine attributes in his humanity. We see this in the scriptures. He's following the will of the Father. And Jesus does not, you know, he doesn't, we see him doing miracles. We see him walking on water and healing people. But he didn't constantly do that. It wasn't as if he sort of was floating with a glow and, you know, he didn't have to walk because he just flew. He, didn't, he wasn't Superman, right? He, he, he would at times, at the direction of the Spirit, um, through, the Father through the Spirit, uh, use his divine attributes in his humanity, but that but he gave up the voluntary exercise of his divine attributes in his human person, um, and also this this unique face to face relationship with the heavenly Father changed for that time. 
So understand that Jesus had two natures, right? He was fully God, fully man in one person. His divine nature didn't change at all. In his divinity, he was always omnipotent. He was always omnipresent. We have to understand he didn't lose any of that in his divine nature. When we talk about him emptying himself, it has to do with what did it mean that he took on a human nature that he added to his divine nature. And really, that's what Paul gets at here. He describes what he means by Jesus emptying himself in the very next phrase. This brings us to Christ's unremarkable appearance. He says he emptied himself. Here's how. Taking the form of a slave, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. That's how. He emptied himself by adding to his divine nature a fully human nature. So that now he was two beings in one. He had two natures in one person. Now, what's interesting here is the word form, taking the form of a slave, is the same Greek word for form earlier talking about Christ's divinity. It's morphe. So when he, when, he, when he says that he took on the form of a slave or humanity, he truly became a man. He, he took on a, fully, uh, a full human nature and added it to his divine nature. This is how he emptied himself. It's really unthinkable, if you think about it, for God, eternal God, to take on flesh. It's a remarkable idea. He, he retained his full deity in his divine nature, but added to his divine nature a human nature and restricted the full rights and use of his divine nature in his human nature. That's what we're talking about in emptying himself. <clears throat> but what's important to see here is that Jesus lived a real human life. He didn't cheat. He had to walk places. He got tired, right? He, 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 was, he was a real human person who experienced temptations and yet for the entirety of his life from birth, never sinned, not a single time. Now, at this point, we have to look back up at where we began. We began with Jesus in the form of God as he's existed from eternity past, in heaven with the rightful glory that he deserves. Now we've, we've, we've gone down this spiral to the point that we see Jesus humbling himself all the way to being made human, to taking, on, to, to, taking to himself a human nature. This is a... This is a huge condescension. What's, what's interesting, too, is Jesus didn't come in sort of a pre-fall state, right? He didn't come like Adam and Eve. He came and lived under the curse, the effects of the curse, right? This is what I was saying earlier. He lived like we live. So, for instance, his body relied on food, water, and oxygen. His body could get sick. Knees could get scraped as a boy. He had a body that felt emotions, such as joy and grief and sorrow. He had a body that could be affected by fatigue after a long day of work. He was a man in his humanity. He really did become everything that you and I are except for sin. I mean, just let that sink in. He took on a real human body for God to need anything. Back to that word of saity. He is self-sufficient. He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything by nature, and yet he took to himself humanity, and in his humanity, lived the way we live. To need air, to need water, things he created. I mean, just think about it. This is humility at the highest level. It's really unfathomable for us to imagine what Jesus really did. But he also says he took on the form 
of a slave. The form of a slave. To add to his humiliation, Christ did not come as just any kind of human being, but really a lowly human being. It would have been enough for for Jesus to come as the most handsome, the most famous, the most powerful human being on the planet. That in and of itself would have been a condescension. Think about it. Just being a human of any kind. But that's not what he did. Jesus should have had a mansion that, 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 you know, would have made King Solomon gasp. He should have had servants that were the wisest servants on the planet, the best of the best. He, he should have been carried around in, 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 a, in some kind of, of carts or something like that, that that everyone could see everywhere he went. And people should have bowed down and worshipped him everywhere he went. But that's not what he did. Paul says he became a slave, being found in the appearance of a man. Isaiah actually describes in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, his form this way, he says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. By design, Jesus and his physical appearance was not much to look at. He, if you passed him on the street, you wouldn't have taken a second glance. He wasn't the, the most handsome. He wasn't the most attractive. There was nothing about him that was not just ordinary. Instead, he was actually born in an insignificant town to insignificant parents amidst rumors that he was an illegitimate child because his parents had conceived him out of wedlock. That's Jesus. We even see that in his adult life, remember? Someone throws that back in his face as an adult, as a way to mock him, that this idea that there was something scandalous about his birth. Really, of all the ways to be born, right? Of all the ways for God to be born, even the announcement of his birth doesn't come to the royals. It comes to shepherds in the middle of the night. This is Jesus. This is humility. But there's even more. I mean, that's enough for us just to sit and ponder and apply to our own selves. But there's more. We're not at the bottom of the spiral yet. Because now we come to Christ's unthinkable death. His unthinkable death. Look back at at the, the text again here in Philippians. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The point of death. He humbled himself. Remember, Paul's bringing us back. That's the point. He's teaching us about humility. Jesus humbled himself by not only becoming a man, but but by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, just, just think about this. I know these are familiar concepts for us. We're here because Jesus died for us, right? This is not new news. So you've got to step back and think about think about how remarkable this is. Some of us have heard this since the womb, okay? So it doesn't it may not sound as remarkable as it is, but it is remarkable. God, God a very God, eternal God, becomes a man, takes on a human body and then dies. It's it's unthinkable that God could need anything. That that's enough, but to think that God would would die, that he would experience death, 
I mean, surely if God was to become a man, he would be taken to heaven like Enoch or like Elijah, right? Not, not being spared death. After all, he was not a sinner. But still we're not done. We're still not at the bottom of the spiral yet because he describes his death in this way. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Understand that when this letter was being read to the church in Philippi, they were not sitting there with with leather Bibles with golden crosses stamped into them. They were not sitting there with golden crosses around their necks. Because the cross, while for us, we see the cross, we have them in our homes and things, it's not wrong that we have those. We see them as, as a symbol of hope, a symbol of joy. The cross was not a happy symbol in that day. In fact, the cross was not just a way of putting someone to death. It was reserved as the most shameful and humiliating way that a person could die on purpose. It was certainly physically excruciating. That's, that's, that's a fact. But that really wasn't even the, the only aspect of the cross that made it undesirable. The cross was designed by the Romans. Now, the Romans picked it up from others, but they sort of perfected the craft, if you will. Um, they, they made it the most, not only shameful, but or painful, but shameful way that a person could die. When you died on the cross, it was intended to make a display of you in front of other people. We know they were crucified naked. Um, we, we know that it was just, they would put them in public places. So there you are, you're hanging sometimes for days, uh, naked in front of everyone, exposed. It was a shameful way to die, so much so that that Cicero, who was a famous Roman philosopher and an orator, was recorded as having said this. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Even the Romans saw it as, ooh, you know, it, it, was, it was a shame. It was, it, was, it was a way to ridicule and mock someone, so much so that the Romans uh, made it illegal to execute a Roman citizen by way of crucifixion. The Jews saw it as even more than that because they saw a person who was crucified as falling under the curse of Deuteronomy 21-23, which says that anyone who is hung on a tree is accursed of God. So they, they walk by, they see that person, they say, that's a person cursed by God. This is how the Son of God came to die. He didn't just come to die. He came to die one of the most violent, painful, shameful, embarrassing deaths that's ever existed in human history. He bore our sins on the cross so that he might bring us to God. Understand, this is all on purpose. Remember back to the beginning of this text, Jesus emptied himself. He did this to himself. Perfect obedience, willful obedience to the Father. It should have been our cross. It should have been our shame. It should have been our suffering, our execution. But he, the crown jewel of heaven, God of very God from eternity past, robed in glory, took it upon himself to take this cross. Now, we have to stop here and just admit we have never known humiliation like this in our life. Never. Not one of us has ever been this disregarded, this offended, this overlooked, this pushed aside. 
We've never stooped this far for the sake of others. We've never experienced this kind of injustice, hatred, or undeserved shame. And and Paul doesn't intend for us to think that we could ever really do what Christ has done for us. Christ is the only one that could have done that. A, he's the only one that began in such an exalted position, and he's the only one that could lower himself to that degree. So that's not the point. He's not saying go and be crucified. The point of this is for the magnificence of the illustration of Christ's humility to overshadow the petty, trite, and inconsequential offenses that we endure in this life. It's for us to, to make the comparison and to see this gulf between the humility of Christ and my own, right? It puts it in perspective. He says, have this mind in yourselves. Have this mind in your church, in your business, in your home, in your thoughts when you're alone, Be characterized, dominated, marked by this kind of humility. This is what it is that Paul's communicating to us. You see, our temptation so often when we are wronged or when people who are under our authority don't submit in the way that we think they should is to say, but I have legitimately been wronged. I have a right, right? Some Christians even think that that's what it means to to have righteous indignation is when it's legitimate sin against me. That's righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is when we are angry on behalf of God because God has been offended. It's not offense over a sin against self, our own person. We say, well, I didn't deserve that to happen to me. That person legitimately usurped my rightful authority. They took what was rightfully mine or they withheld from me something that I rightfully earned. I've been legitimately stepped on, legitimately pushed aside. And this passage stares us in the face when we think this way and says, have you been wronged as deeply as Christ? Have you given up more than Christ? The pattern that Jesus set for us in his life was one of a willful choice to live with humility. A willful choice. It means that even when you've been legitimately wronged by someone else, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls you to make the same willful choice that he made to choose humility. Humility. We're talking about our, our relationships here. I'm not saying that a, a, a business that's, that can't ever sue because there were legitimate problems and things like that. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about in our personal relationships, being overlooked, stepped on, sinned against. We're to choose humility. Our, our rightful position is not to be grasped, held on to for our own benefit but forsaken for the benefit of others and the glory of God. The truth is Jesus Christ is the only one in human history who actually deserves something better than what he received, right? If if we received what we deserve, where would we all end up? In hell, exactly. Jesus is the only one who actually deserved more. And he willfully gave that up. He gave up what was rightfully his so that he could bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How much more should we make a willful choice to stoop down and serve our brothers and sisters, to serve our wives, to serve our families, to serve those that we work with, to serve our neighbors, you fill in the blank, in following Christ. Have this mind in yourselves. Now, I've said all of that to bring us to this point, this discussion point. What I want to do now is just talk this out 
in the application of have this mind in yourselves. We've, we've followed this, this path with Paul, the spiral downward of Christ. And so let's, I'm going to talk about several categories, and I want us just to, to think about this and, and parse this out together. First of all, how should this passage, what we've just witnessed in the life of Christ, affect our leadership as husbands? How should this perspective affect our leadership as husbands? Let's talk about that. Any ideas? Uh, definitely per- putting down personal preferences for the sake of our wives, right? Little, little things at, at least, right? Little preferences mm-hmm. around the home and scheduling or whatever. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yes? In a book, uh, a good marriage book, uh, When Sinners Say I Do, there's a chapter on putting your wisdom into gear mm-hmm. and basically living out your, the truths. And guess yeah. what first gear is? In humility, suspect yourself first. Yeah. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. Know your own heart and what a sinner you are. Yeah. So point the finger. Exactly, yeah. That humility causes us to do self-examination, right? You've been asking how can you be praying for her to start with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's easier to forgive. Easier to forgive. So yeah. Easier to forgive us. How are we not going to forgive others in the sense of humility? Mm-hmm. I fall short in repenting, owning up to error or anything, you know, just admitting, admitting <laughs> sin. And yeah. Repenting to her. Yeah. That, that repentance is one of the first steps of of becoming, of putting on humility, right? Because it takes a lot to just stop and say without qualification, yeah. forgive me, I sinned against you in this way. And, and so I mean, it's actually in my notes for later, but I'll just we'll use it now. I mean, if, if as we go through this and you realize, man, I've just been leading in pride, I've, I, I've not led with humility, the first step of putting on humility is just repenting to those that you've been leading wrongly. Like especially like you said earlier, your two points, you know, we respond two ways. And unfortunately, you know, one of mine would be to like step back. Okay, take over. <laughs> but being quick to come back and say, you know, forgive me for that. That's even putting her in a place that she should be having to go there. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, a lot of people along that line, they, they, think, they think of pride as the other, of the loud outburst of, of anger or domineering. And, and a lot of people think, especially if they struggle with things like depression and things, they, they think they have a really low view of themselves. That's why the world talks about self-esteem all the time. And actually, the, both of those people, the one that blows up and the one that, that clams up, have a really high view of themselves. They're just manifesting that sin different ways. Um, the person who gets down and woe is me and okay, you just do it because I'm worthless has just a high, as high opinion of themselves. Um, they're just disappointed they think I should be getting all this and I'm not. So I'm going to feel bad about it. Right. But it still comes from the same place. So we have to recognize that in our hearts as, as the pride that it is in our, in our leadership. I think part of being a leader also in, in our houses to know that we have to repent and to take the first step. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation, even if we think we're wrong, it's our responsibility to do that as leaders in the home. Mm-hmm. What about this? How would this perspective affect 
the way we lead our wives through in a certain direction. Let's, let's say that, that there's a, a difference of opinion that we have with our wife about something, but there is a, a genuine biblical justification for why we should do this. And, and, and to not lead in that way would be unfaithfulness on our part. How do we lead with humility when we have to lead our wife in a direction that at the moment is not necessarily the direction she wants to go? Because I want to be clear, this is not telling us, we're talking about laying down our preferences. We're not talking about just saying yes to anything our wife wants to do if in fact it's not what the scriptures would would say, right? And the things that the scripture would say are, leadership is to lead our family to obey the scripture. So how do we do that and say and still maintain humility? I think the first area I fall short is actually understanding her her view on something. I'm quick to like I hear something, voice, and I just immediately see hear, oh hey, that's not that doesn't sound right and jump on it. Mm-hmm. Instead of first listening and trying to understand where she's coming from mm-hmm. before ever addressing anything. So that's yeah. that's where I always just too quick so i don't know yeah that's a huge one just maybe slowing down and mm-hmm. trying to be a better listener yeah i think that's such a good point because no matter how, if you've been married for five minutes or for 50 or 60 years the truth is we can't ever really read each other's minds it was, we, people say that oh we've been married so long you know i just know what she's thinking before she's thinking no, no you don't no you don't you're not inside her head right what actually happens is we just assume motives. That's what we're doing. We're assuming we know, and then we make judgments upon what we our assumption rather than taking the time to draw out what really is in her heart and mind. And so what you said is exactly true. We have to first make sure, because she just may be wording things in a different way than we word them. We may agree in, more than we think on something, but we just make an immediate assumption about her motives and her thoughts before she even finishes communicating them. And, and that's how miscommunication happens. So I think, yeah, the one, the first step in that humble leadership is to take the time to actually hear her, let her, let her say it as clearly as she can, and then even say it back to her. Okay. I mean, this is what I hear you saying. Is this accurate? Say it back. Especially, I would say the more potential a discussion has to become an argument, the slower you need to be and the more intentional you need to be in this process to actually say it back calmly as, as honestly as you can. This is what I hear you saying. Am I right? And give her the chance to say, yes, that's correct. That's what I'm saying. Or no, that's not what I meant. So, okay, tell me again until I am sure, okay, this is what you're saying. Now I'm going to reply. I think that can save us a lot of, of sinful arguments of just making assumptions. Like, I think you know, towards your question though is, Preparing yourself, knowing if you've been married a few years, you know you realize how you how you respond to conflict, and you, what you recognize is a conflict coming. If I'm going to face that question, mm-hmm. <laughs> this could come back. But I think being you know the man to say, I know that's coming. I know I like comfort of not having this conflict, but I'm you know first I need to approach it through God's eyes that this is what I need to do. And if I have the opinion, don't be afraid to bring it up. You know, if you're one, uh, she ain't running off. Because we usually think, well, I don't want to get into this, and I don't want to take that path. So I'm just going to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Instead of what your question, I think, is we're going to approach this, and I know it's going to 
bring up the little hairs on our back. Right. You know, but we're to we're to approach that with compassion and prayer and but bring it up. Yeah. Put it out there on the table if it's something to talk about. Yeah. Do it humbly, but we have to be we have to lead. I mean, le- leadership at the end of the day is means the decisions, the decisions that are made in your household ultimately fall back on you're accountable for them. Now, if you just abrogate your role and you just let her make all the decisions, uh, understand you're still the one that's accountable for those decisions. And so that's that's why I'm asking the question: is I don't want to confuse us in thinking, oh, well, humble leadership is just doing whatever she wants. Um, no, it, it's laying down my preferences, but it's also leading the family, but leading with humility. So that means. I would say if you know there's an issue and, and you're going to lead your family in a way that you know your wife may struggle, that leadership also still has to be humble. So there should be a patience. There should be a softness. It's not a ramrod, my way or the highway, and get on board or respect me and yada, yada. I mean, we're, it is to be Christ-like, calm, soft, humble, but lead. Right, that that's that's the balance there. We can still display Christ. That and the 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 way we know that we're doing the right thing is not necessarily by her reaction. Right, it is by us being Christ-like in the way we approach it, and and that may not always lead to easy conversations, <clears throat> but that's what leadership is: um, is to be willing to lead even when it's hard. Now, I'm and also knowing, I guess. Part of leadership is being equipped to the point where, you know, in that humility, you're able to say, well, I know that that's what you think of it, but what does the Word of God say? And take her to the Word together, mm-hmm. but knowing where you're going to go in the Word, not just yeah. taking something out of context to fit your own need to, to mm-hmm. win the argument, I guess. Yeah, I think that's huge as well. That our, uh, If your wife is a believer, I pray that all of our wives are, uh, then... Both of us are in submission to the word of God. That is the authority. And I, I don't have a, we don't have an authority that's innate to us. It's, it's a derived authority. It's a stewardship that's been delegated to us. And so that's a great point. We need to connect it to, here, here's why I believe that this would be best for our family. And here's the biblical justification for that. So it's clear. I'm not just making it's sort of like the Wild West, just making decisions out here um, and trying to, to just do what would make me happy. I, I believe that this is a way that would honor God to lead our family. And uh, um, that will help give your wife some confidence that, hey, he's, he's being thoughtful in these decisions. He's not being quick uh, to just rashly decide. What about his fathers? Let's turn gears. How would this perspective affect us in our leadership as fathers? I think um, yesterday I had an incident with my son. Um, I, I guess to answer that question in a more succinct manner is that I think having an attitude of I know that I need to shepherd my kids, I need to shepherd their hearts, but at the same time, I have to have that understanding that I myself needs to be shepherded as well mm-hmm. and needs to learn more on, about who God is and His Word. Mm-hmm. So I say that because for, there was this huge study in my heart to be proudful yesterday. Mm-hmm. Every day, not every day, on those times when I, I, I drop off my son to school, we have this tradition wherein we look up verse in the car, talk about it really shortly, and then that's his memory verse for the week. Okay? Mm-hmm. That we pray uh, on the way to school. And then he asked me that one 
um, phrase on that verse, Proverbs chapter three, verse five to six. That last phrase in verse chapter and in verse six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was this huge thing in my heart to explain it to him, even if I didn't have a full understanding of it. <laughs> and I wanted to show myself that I'm the shepherd. I know the answer to this. <laughs> right? And I had that huge thing, and like, and I wanted myself to look, you know. Say bluntly, I wanted to prove something for my son, mm-hmm. which in itself so evil, right? <laughs> yeah. It's so proud and so prideful. And when that hit me, I was like, "What am I thinking?" You know. Mm-hmm. And I had every, I had to every fiber of my being to say, "Son, can I? I don't know exactly what that means yet, but can I? I need to look at it more, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about it when I take this school next time." And mm-hmm. I said that, but every fiber of my being wanted to be pompous and say, I know that phrase. I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, I think that's one way of me checking. And that's why that hit me when you, when you, when you were talking about prideful and mm. how Christ emptied himself. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> mm. Yeah, so. that's a great example. Oh, thank you for that. I think it is important for our kids. Uh, every dad wants their kids to think they're Superman. I mean, it feels good when your kid loves you, looks up to you. We desire that, but it's also it's actually helpful for our kids to know, for us to be humble enough to admit our mistakes mm-hmm. and our weaknesses, and that no, I love you, son, and I, and I I hope you respect me. But ultimately, it's Christ that you need. We're pointing them to the Savior, and and not to us as the ultimate example. Uh, we want to live lives they can follow, but we also want to be honest when we fail and when we're limited because they need to understand it's actually better for them to hear that from our mouth and to find it out later that it's all a facade that we've put up that we're this perfect thing because mm-hmm. it can be very disillusioning to our kids if and when they start to realize wait a minute because they'll see your sin all right <laughs> they'll get old enough to realize that was not right that was not consistent <laughs> um and so it's actually more christ-like just to be honest and humble and to repent and and for them to see us live a real christian life what else? What are some other ways that should affect our, our parenting? I think if you consider others more important than yourself, especially in your kids in this situation, it's like how many times are we going to have them to tell us that? Can you play it with me? Or have five or ten minutes? How many times do we say, oh, or how many times do we actually do it? How many times are we going to have that, you know, and not and to put away your selfishness and your tiredness and to do it, even if it's five or ten, fifteen minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think with our kids... Our kids are the realm of authority, especially in, when they're young, uh, where we have the most ability to craft a situation that's totally built on our preferences because they don't have any recourse, right? They, uh, they have to do what we want them to do, especially when they're young like that. And so you're exactly right. That humility is even, even preferring their preferences as much as we can um, when they're children. But I think it's also like how you treat your wife because they're going to watch you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're going to model that uh, to them. Mm-hmm. So that's very important. Too. Yeah, absolutely. For them to see a healthy relationship and to know that the marriage is the primary relationship in the home. Uh, obviously, our relationship with Christ, but the primary human relationship in the home. And that the kids are not at the top and we're just doing everything for the kids, <laughs> right? Um, that's not healthy for them. Here's another one. I, I know that we don't all fit in this category, but I think it's helpful for us all to think about this. How does this perspective affect being a good grandfather? Some of you guys are grandfathers. Um, I think it's helpful for us men who have... Uh, I think it's helpful for us who are not yet grandfathers to think about that because it will give us more patience with our fathers or our father-in-laws 
as they try to interact with our kids. What does it look like as a grandfather? It takes a lot of humility to let your let your son or daughter um, deal with the grandchildren and try to be helpful and and not try not try to take over. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree with that. When I've got eleven grandkids, and uh, when when the, my son and daughter-in-law or at the house with their children, my grandkids, you want to discipline them. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of humility to say, okay, you, you can't play with that piece of something on the coffee table. You know, you let them, mm-hmm. you sort of, you have to kick back a little bit, step back a little bit to, um, you want to step in and over, you know, this is my house and yeah. you have to humble yourself to say, okay, let it go. And let them do it because that's happened many a time. You know, don't do that, whoever. Right. And, uh, and my son will come up, Dad. I'll take care of it. Dad, I'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. So you really got to. It's a fine line there. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of, of warning your grandchildren to respect your stuff and mm-hmm. do what you need. You know, have done at the house without stepping on your kids. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And it's hard. Mm. It's hard. It's because, and then you want to spoil them. You want to give them candy. You want to give them ice cream and treats and do all this stuff. And then they come up and say, "You can't do that." You know? You, yeah. No. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. So you have to. You really got to think through things before you say things. Yeah. You know, to keep everybody peaceful. <laughs> yeah. I think it's challenging, and I think it's one that, as younger men who are are just raising our kids, it's that we don't take enough time to empathize with until we're in the position. Then we say, oh, now I see why my dad was that way or why my father-in-law was that way, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it would be really helpful for us as young men to step back and think, okay, I see how that can be hard. Here's one. How about when your, your kids as adults do something different in the way they raise their kids than you did with them. How hard is it not to see that as a judgment from them on, on your parenting? Right. I, mean, I, I, I can see that as being a temptation. Am I, am I making that up or is that a real thing? <clears throat> um, well, you can make it worse than that is that they're a non-believer and then it's. Right. Well, that's a whole different, that's another ball of wax, right? <clears throat> that's a whole other thing because then you're trying to have a gospel influence in their in their life but even I think for Christian parents with Christian kids who are who are they recognize their kids are trying to be faithful that can be a real hard thing and so my point in bringing this up is to say uh, this in every role we have if we want to be like Jesus humility is going to be key right and, and as, as grandfathers, you have a, a, a crucial role to play in the life still of your adult children and of your grandchildren. But it's a different role than it was as a father, to your, right? And so just thinking through, I still need to reflect Christ. And I think, I've seen grandparents make different choices. Some of them just say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to. I don't care. I'm going to have to give them ice cream every time they come. and I'm Because I'm the grandparent. You can't tell me what to do. And then that's that's pride on one side, and there's the other side to say, okay, if you're going to be like that, you know, I'm just going to y'all do what you want, you know. I'll, if y'all call, we'll come over, but we're not we're not going to we're not going to engage, 
you know, that's pride on the other side. And so I, I think it, we, we need to reflect Christ even in that role. And then the, the final role, we, we're, we're out of time, but one I'll just leave for you to think through on your own is, it, well, there's two more, really the workplace and the world. You know, thinking through in the workplace, how, how, does, the, how does that play in in a secular environment to still treat people with the humility of Christ? And then just as I interact with people in the world, my point here is is really this. What concerns us the most in our relationship with other people? Is it their salvation and sanctification? Or is it that they would respect and obey our leadership when we're in areas of, of authority? And I think when we think about that, it will transform the way we see our wife's disagreement with us or a, a co-worker disrespecting us or our child disrespecting us, or a grandchild, when I say, you know what, my highest priority, because this was Christ's highest priority, was the glory of God and the accomplishing of this plan of redemption, right? He came to save his people and ultimately to sanctify and glorify them. So that's got to be my highest, my highest aim is to glorify God in this relationship and to do what I can as a tool in God's hands towards their salvation and sanctification, realizing those are works of God, but may he use me as a tool in this relationship. I think when we keep that at the forefront, it produces humility. It slows us down. It says, wait a minute, this is, this is not just about winning this argument. It's not just about getting her to see my way or respect my authority or my kid to get back in line. There's a gospel chance here. It's a gospel opportunity. I better not miss it, right? So that would be my encouragement. I'd leave that with you. But let this, let this passage just kind of sit on you today. Just think about each step down that spiral of Jesus leaving that rightful place, taking on humanity and dying for our sins. And may we implement that in our leadership. Let's pray together. Lord God, these are convicting things for us. And we recognize that, that pride is such a, at times, a subtle sin in our hearts. And we, we tolerate it far too often and don't even recognize it at times until it's it's already uh, too late because we've we've already seen the fruit of it. And we pray, God, that you would help us to to be proactive in the pursuit of humility and putting to death pride, so that Jesus would shine through us in all of our relationships and in whatever level of authority you give us in this life and the different hats that we wear. We pray that your glory and the gospel would be central in our approach to leadership. Um, and we know that humility is vital to that. So we ask that you would help us to be humble men. Thank you for your perfect example. It is your example that really is the reason we're here today because you, in that example, were not just giving us an illustration, but actually dying to pay for our sins. And we're so thankful for that sacrifice. Help us to live in light of it today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.